As is customary, let's get our bearings again. Okay, real quickly. Because actually I had thought that we were going to do 33 and 34 together. I see them as being twins. 33 and 34 are twins, at least to me, in that they're both about joy, but they're both post-chapter 32 chapters about joy. Remember we spoke about last week that the topic of joy is from 26 through 34, but is interrupted by the subject of Ava Sisrol in chapter 32. And I told you that I originally, when I made the Tanya map, I had 26 through 31 is joy, 32 is Ava Sisrol, and then I started 33 being the topic of making a dwelling place for Hashem in the lower realms. And that I submitted this to one of the, or probably the foremost uh, teacher of Hasidic thought, and he told me, no, 33 and 34 continue the subject of joy. And my question was, yeah, but they're about being happy over providing a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. And he said, exactly, being happy about providing a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. Whereas in chapters 35, 36, and 37, the subject of providing a, a dwelling place to Hashem in this world is a subject in its own right. So, 33 and 34 are continuing and finishing off the Simcha chapters that started in 26. And they both happen after the interruption that occurred in chapter 32. And they both are using the idea of providing Hashem a dwelling place in this world as the cause for joy. And I'll give you another thing they have in common. They're both proactive sources of joy. As opposed to 26 to 31, where we were troubleshooting and combating a negative emotional state, 33 and 34 are not necessarily in reaction at all to any problem. They are just ways of cultivating joy in its own right. So far, so good? Okay, chapter 33 we spoke about the joy that one feels in providing Hashem a place in this world. In fact, this is how much 33 and 34 have in common. I could give them the same synopsis if I'm general enough. Chapter 33 is about being happy that you can provide a place for Hashem in this lowest world. Chapter 34 is about being happy that you can provide Hashem a dwelling place in this lowest world. If I'm general enough, they have the same synopsis. The difference between them, <clears throat> chapter 33 was talking about not allowing the existence of creation to lead me astray about the actual oneness of existence. We spoke about the fact that the creation of the world is not an illusion like the other ideologies will explain. Um, the world exists, but there is a delusion. There's a subjective mistake that we can make, which is to think of creation as something independent, God forbid. And when we overcome that delusion, and we recognize that there is absolute oneness and even right here in this physical world, which um, its default effect upon us is to block and to hide the presence of God in the world. When we can overcome that, 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 that uh, delusion, then we, as it were, make God a home in this world. Now, he's already everywhere, but from the perspective of our letting him in, so to speak. That's dependent upon our free will, and our choice to actually see his oneness even within the um, diversity and finitude uh, and variety 
of created worlds. In other words, if you think about God being here in this world, then you are allowing him to be here in this world. So chapter 33 was really a meditation. Think about God's oneness. Think about the fact that he is present here, that the world is not, uh, the world doesn't shut him out. It just hides him, and you have to look for him. And when you find him, when you find that oneness <coughs> is right here and runs through everything and is the core of all existence, then you are providing the king lodging with you in your home and any commoner who had the opportunity to provide the king lodging in his home would surely be joyful and furthermore it's a doubled and redoubled joy because you're happy that you have the privilege to host him he's happy that you're hosting him and then you're happy that's the double joy and the redoubled is you're happy that he's happy and he's happy that you're happy so you're happy for yourself, he's happy for himself, you're happy for him, he's happy for you. Okay, and that was all from just being able to get past the delusion of create, creation being a, a uh, something separate from God's absolute oneness. That was chapter 33. Chapter 34... I told you it's the same synopsis. I'm going to be happy about the fact that I can provide a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. But it's a little bit different manner of providing a dwelling place in this world. Okay, here's how we start chapter 34. We start chapter 34 by talking about the Ovois that the Oves, says the Oves were considered the Merkava. Merkava means a chariot. And the idea of a chariot means that it has no will for itself. A chariot doesn't drive itself. A chariot is inanimate. It needs a driver. Yes, even a self-driving car doesn't drive itself. It has to be programmed to drive. Somebody had to program it. Unless it's Herbie the Love Bug. If anyone else is a child of the 70s. Showing your age. So, yeah. Well, it is my birthday today. So. You, you can guess how old I am. Yeah. So, the chariot, the vehicle, means something that has no volition of its own, but expresses the volition of the driver. In this case, what we mean is there are certain figures, notably the, the Alves, the patriarchs, who are called chariots to God, because they are not running on self-will at all. They are devoid of self-will. They are manifesting only... Thank you. They are manifesting only God's will for them. That's why they're called the chariots. And we actually spoke about this term... I wouldn't expect you to remember it because it was in a group of chapters that we did very, very quickly. Do you remember 18 through 25? When we were racing through 18 through 25? We mentioned the idea that really there are two states, connectedness and, God forbid, disconnectedness. And we spoke about how every mitzvah is an absolute connection that when you do God's will, it really doesn't matter which one of the 613 commandments it is. In fact, it doesn't even matter if it's one of the 613 biblical commandments. It could be rabbinical commandment. It could be anything that is his will as constituted by the entire body of Torah law, biblical and rabbinic. 
And that very act of surrender is uh, considered to put us in a Merkava state, a state of being a chariot. Now you're going to ask, and that was in chapter, no, I'm not expecting to remember this, chapter 23. Now, you're going to ask, well, if it's said in chapter 23 that we all have this state of uh, chariot-like surrender, then what's special about the Ovois, the patriarchs, being referred to as the chariots? And the, the difference is not qualitative, but quantitative. The, the, the level of surrender is binary, like we were talking about in chapter 23. It, either it is or it isn't. Either we're surrendered or we're not. Either we're doing his will or we're doing our own will. What's, so, so qualitatively, it either is or it isn't. But quantitatively, the question of constancy um, comes into play. So whereas a regular person may surrender his or her will and then take back that will and then surrender it again um, perhaps many 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 times throughout the day the always were in a state where they were already completely surrendered that was their default setting they had already given up their own will and were only manifesting divine will to the extent that mitzvahs would be manifest through them automatically. Okay, I don't want to get into a whole discussion of that, because it's really not the point here. The point is that there were such people, called the Aves, the patriarchs, who lived as chariots to godliness. Here in this world, souls and bodies, they lived as clear conduits, unobstructed channels for the manifestation of God's will. After the Oves, we had others who also were similarly surrendered. We had the prophets. And of the prophets, the most surrendered of them all <clears throat> was Moshe Rabbeinu. Of Moshe Rabbeinu, it is said, that the divine presence spoke through his throat. Almost like, you know, you imagine a, a radio. You turn on the radio and it plays the signal that's sent from, uh, it's broadcast from, the, from, from, from a tower. And the radio has no choice as far as what comes out. Just a uh, just a vessel. Now, collectively, we all had this kind of uh, this this level of surrenderedness, or being this clear of a conduit, at the time of the revelation at Sinai the time of the two <clears throat> first commandments, which we all heard from Hashem Himself. You know that, uh, you know, there's a vort. doesn't say this here in Tanya, but uh, the Torah, the word Torah, Tof is 400, Vav is 6, that's 406, Reish is 200, that's 606, Hey is 5, that's 611. Why is Torah 611? It would make a lot more sense if it were 613. <clears throat> and the answer is because Torah Tzivolonu Meisha. Torah is what Hashem commanded Meisha. First two commandments, Anoichi and Layilacha, we heard ourselves directly from Hashem. The rest we had to get it from Meisha. So the Torah is the 611 commandments we heard through Moshe, but then the first two, which are the basis for all other, for all the other 613, is uh, what we heard ourselves. So the first two commandments we experienced 
directly, just like Moshe Rabbeinu experienced divine revelation. But we couldn't handle it. And as you know, our, our souls left our bodies, and we had to be revived. And, uh, and we asked Moshe to finish, you know, uh, downloading it directly, and then he should make a zip file, and then slowly, you know, convey it to us in, way, in a way that is uh, palatable, which basically is the system of Tedesh Bechsav and Tedesh Balpeh. But at any rate, we did have the, that experience, that intensity of being a completely open conduit to the revelation of godliness, uh, but we couldn't sustain it. So then what Hashem did is He created a place, a physical place, for that level of open revelation to exist. Where was that place? In the base of Mikdash. And before the base of Mikdash, even in the Midbar, in the wilderness, they had the Mishkan, they had the traveling sanctuary. And specifically, in the, both in the Mishkan and in the Mikdash, that the place which was the home to the most intense revelation was the Kodesh Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a place of absolute revelation. That's why, for instance, Mokim Ha'orin Einoi Min Hamida, that the dimensions of the Ark were both within time-space and above it simultaneously. So that if you would measure from wall to wall, and then you would of the Holy of Holies, and you would also then measure from the wall, one wall to the outside of the Ark, and then from the other wall to the other outside of the Ark, you would get the same measurement because the Oren did not take up space. And yet it had dimensions, and when it was built, it was, there were, there were, it was uh, built to, uh, to stipulations of uh, size. The point is that the Holy of Holies was a place in this world, but above this world. A, a physical location, but not one that's subject to the limitations of time-space. And uh, therefore, what we would call a, a place of, of divine revelation. Now, that lasted, meaning the fact that we had a place in the world where this revelation can exist, can exist that lasted until the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Then, obviously, um, after the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, we did not have access to that, and there had to be some other way of uh, experiencing this this uh, divine revelation. So our sages tell us that since the time of the destruction of the temple, Ein la that Hashem has no place in his world but the four cubits of Torah study. What does that mean? Obviously the entire world belongs to him. What it means is that the world belongs to him. That's true. But how recognizable is that ownership? Well, I'll put it this way. It is so unrecognizable, at least from a certain standpoint, that people look at the world and not only don't automatically come to the conclusion that the world belongs to God, they may even look at the world and, God forbid, come to the conclusion that the world needs no God. So, yes, the whole world belongs to him. Or like we spoke about in the previous chapter, the whole world is him, and there's nothing 
but God's existence. But from a revealed standpoint, and what we're talking about here is the difference between, not between it is or it isn't, but it's revealed or it's concealed. Is it revealed or concealed? When you look at the world, God's ownership of the world is not revealed. There's one place where God's ownership is revealed, and that is in the Dalit Amish Shel Halacha, the four cubits of Torah study. Why is that so? Let's get into a little bit of a technical discussion here. Um, I wanted to get into this more in chapters 35 through 37, where it's extremely important. Um, but I'm going to do it here because we need it here as well. And then I hope we'll, you'll remember it when we get to 35, 36, and 37. I want to just discuss a little bit the idea of rotzain, of will, and pnimiyas harotzain and chitzainiyas harotzain. The inner dimension of will and the, and the outer dimension of will. <clears throat> will is not monolithic. <clears throat> there are dimensions <coughs> within will. And we refer to it as inner and outer <coughs> dimensions. When you want something for the sake of something else, when something is a stepping stone, a means to an end, that's considered an outer will. When something is a stepping stone to a stepping stone, then it's an even more outward dimension of will, more superficial. Conversely, when something is the thing that you want just because that's what you want and you can't answer why you want it anymore, this is just what I want, not a means to an end, this is just what I want, then we've come to the innermost will. So for instance, if I say, I just saw you set the alarm, did you want to do that? And the honest answer is, I mean, yeah, I guess, I mean, I mean, I did it, yeah, I mean, I did it with volition, I, I guess I did want to do it. Okay, is that your deepest desire in life, to set an alarm? No, not at all. I do it because I need to get up in the morning. Ah, so it's a superficial layer of desire. You don't really want to set the alarm. You want to get up in the morning. Now let me ask you this. You want to get up in the morning, precisely at 6 a.m. Is that your innermost desire in life? No, I have to get up at 6 a.m. because I have to make lunches for the kids and put together some semblance of davening before I do carpool and... Uh, That's why I have to uh, set the alarm for that time. Ah, very good. So it's about making lunches and driving carpool. Is that your innermost desire in life? No. <laughs> Actually, if that would get done on its own, that would be quite fine with me. All right, so why do you do that? Well, I suppose it's because my children taken care of. I would like them to be taken care of. They should be healthy, they should feel secure, they should have what they need. Yeah, why do you want that? Well, that's a good question. That's now, that, now you're getting very personal, now you're getting deep. Why do I want my children to be taken care of? I mean, uh, I suppose that, uh, you know, that's just a natural thing. And motherhood is instinctive. But if you want to get very deep, I guess it's because... Hashem entrusted me with these children and uh, gave me the mitzvah to raise them, and I'm doing it because this is how I serve Hashem. 
Oh, and why do you want to do that? Why do you want to serve Hashem? Well, I don't know. That's the meaning of life. Yeah, why is that the meaning of life? I don't know. You've got to have some meaning of life. That's, that's the one I came to. Oh, you don't even have an answer why you want to do it. Right, because now we've arrived at the innermost desire. Setting the alarm is not my innermost desire. Getting up at 6 a.m. is not my innermost desire. Packing lunches is not my innermost desire. Even that my children should be taken care of is not my innermost desire. There's a reason for that as well. Serving Hashem is my innermost desire. And each of these desires are layers <clears throat> that bring me closer to that innermost desire. So, let's talk about it now the way it exists from Hashem's perspective. Does Hashem want there to be cows? Yeah. Yes. Okay, very good. And how do you know Hashem wants there to be cows? Because there are cows. That's right. That's very good. That's okay. Our cows, do cows constitute Hashem's innermost desire? No. He wants them for something. He doesn't want them just so that he has them. He wants them for something. Well, what does he want cows for? I don't know. Every reason, but I could think of some things I know that he wants cows for. How do you make tefillin? How do you make a Sefer Torah? How do you make a mezuzah? It's from parchment. You know where parchment comes from? Cows. And is it just that Hashem wants there to be tefillin in the world? Or he wants the Jewish person to put on the tefillin? He wants the Jewish person to put on the tefillin. And why does he want the Jewish person to put on the tefillin? Ah, that, he, that he just wants. That's his innermost desire. That's his innermost desire. Once you say, why do you want that? Well, that's just what I want. Now we've gotten there. Now we're at my innermost desire. <clears throat> when, you, when you ask why, because, why, because, why, because, why, because, until you get to the thing where you say, uh, no, because, that's just what it is. Now we've gotten to the core. That's just what he wants. The mitzvahs are Hashem's innermost desire. It's just what he wants. So, you can look around the world and you can see an expression of God's will. <clears throat> but it's not his innermost will. Indeed, and I don't want to rile you up for a whole discussion here, Indeed, if you see evil in the world, to some degree that is an expression of God's will. No one else is forcing him to make evil in his world. It's also an expression of his will, not his innermost will. Indeed, it's probably the most extraneous will because he doesn't desire the evil for itself. He does, in the end, he doesn't even keep the evil. He removes all the darkness. It was only there for the sake of creating challenge, so it has no intrinsic value. But it is part of the plan on a very extraneous level of will. So you can look around the world and you can see, you can behold examples of God's will. Everything is an example of God's will. If it's happening, he obviously wills it. But if you want to behold God's innermost will, what he really, really, really wants, for no other reason than that's just what he wants, where do you go? Where do you look? What did you say? 
Halacha. Why did you say halacha? You are 100% right. Why did you, you... How did you zero in on specifically that part of Torah? Because you know this chapter, or was intuitive? I didn't see another option. Because you said that. Well, you said that. Are the most of points of halacha. Oh, because I said, and in line of Kamesh Baruch Wow, I forgot which Maimar Chazal I was explaining. <laughs> you guys are great. Amazing. Yes, that's right. There's nothing to Hashem that affords this degree of revelation in this world like the four cubits of Halacha. That means when you find out that if a situation is like this, Hashem's desire, his opinion, is that the ruling should be in a certain way, you are finding out his innermost desire. Because that is what he wants, just because that's what he wants. We spoke about it a little bit. Again, I'm not expecting you to remember this, but in chapter 5, remember chapter 5 when we spoke about well, we juxtaposed how chapter 4 was talking about clothing for the soul. And mitzvahs are like the soul's clothing. In chapter 5, we spoke about food for the soul. The Torah study is the soul's nourishment. And over there, we mentioned how Torah constitutes the revelation of, of Hashem's innermost will. And that even if a particular case will not come to pass, even if it remains completely hypothetical, the fact that Hashem has an opinion about what the ruling should be, if it were to come to pass, that itself constitutes a revelation of His innermost will. Yeah? So a person who's studying Torah all the time is very connected to Hashem's innermost will. But we also know that our relationship with Hashem needs to be cultivated on a personal level. How, how do you juxtapose those two ideas? Well, the question was, so all we have to do then is study halacha all day? I mean, that's not how you said it, but that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, I'm, that's how I'm translating the question. Um, let me tell you something. It's funny. You learn Tanya, and Tanya tells you, you know, the most important thing to do is to learn halacha. So then close the Tanya and go, go learn Shulchan Aruch. But you wouldn't appreciate why you're learning the Shulchan Aruch without learning the Tanya. So we need both. We need the what and the why. The, the revealed part of Torah, meaning Gemara and, and halacha, what we call nigle is the what. What does Hashem want? Chsidis and Kabbalah, which is the inner dimension, that's the why. Why does Hashem want what He wants? So we need both. But yes, to answer your question, if you learn Chsidis, and it doesn't cause you to learn more nigla, especially halacha, then something's wrong. So are you saying that chassidus is going to give motivation to learn? Um, Not only chassidus gives you motivation to learn uh, the revealed portions of the Torah, but it will enrich your experience. I, I understand, and even personally understand that. But it, you know, Hashem is infinite, and someone studying halacha Torah is connected with the infinite. And how is someone who understands the reasons why any closer to the infinite than someone who's only on the on the uh, level of the Okay, but this is exactly the point. It's not about them being any closer. It's, this is irrelevant because it's not about your subjective experience. Yeah. This is about Hashem's experience. So Hashem's experience. What we're saying is this. You're, you're actually, I don't know if this is a sign of just how intuitive, how intuitively Tanya is structured, but you're actually preempting the very next place where this chapter goes. 
Okay, after the chapter ex explains, let me back up from the beginning. The patriarchs were chariots, completely surrendered to God's will. So too the prophets after them, especially Moshe Rabbeinu, who was nothing but a conduit. We experienced that kind of surrender on the first two commandments, but we couldn't maintain it. God then created a place where that occurs in this world, called the Holy of Holies, in the Mishkan and in the Mikdash. When that was removed from us because of the destruction, God created another way where that level of revelation could exist in the world. And that is, wherever His will is manifest through the study of His will as embodied in Halacha. The very next place the chapter goes is like this. It outlines for us a meditation. And it says like this. We should say to ourselves, in fact, he gives us a monologue. Dr. Rebbe gives us a monologue. He gives us a script. He says, I should say to myself, it is true. My thoughts are inadequate to act as an abode for God. I cannot wrap my mind around infinity, right? So if you're going to talk about, and this was your question, the subjective experience, I cannot grasp him. In fact, not only I cannot grasp him, but no one can grasp him. And even if I grasp more than some other guy, we're both not grasping infinity, so the fact that I'm grasping more of infinity than he is, is really irrelevant because we're both not, there's no fraction of infinity. So one person has greater insight than another about infinity, there really is no such thing as one person is any closer because of that greater insight. So we can't get there by comprehension, by understanding. It's impossible. Even the greatest of us. Therefore, this is the monologue the Altarebbe suggests. He says, I will say to myself, therefore, since I will not be able to grasp Hashem with my thought, I cannot get myself there through trying to imagine what God is. I'll never get there. But what I can do is turn myself into an abode, into a home for Hashem by creating times throughout my day that are dedicated to the study of His will. So it has nothing to do with my subjective experience. It has nothing to do with how greatly I appreciate the degree of revelation that's occurring. What it has to do with is... It's happening. I'm creating a place in this world, this world of concealment, which is a redundancy because the word oilam itself means concealment. Oilam maloshin helem. The word oilam, ayin vav lamed mem, is from the word helem, which means concealment. Creation inherently conceals creator. So I'm in this world of concealment. I'm allowing there to be a place where God's innermost will is manifest. That a person can sit down and with a finite brain understand that if the doorpost is shaped like this or like that, the mezuzah belongs there or not, or on this side or that side. Which is God's innermost will. So, this is the this is the, the 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 bottom line here. Hashem wants a dwelling place in this world. I can't provide that for him by being like the patriarchs or like Moshe Rabbeinu. But I can set time for studying his innermost will. which is otherwise known as halacha, and giving him a place in this world 
where his innermost will is manifest. How much time do I give? The Alter Rebbe says for that, you'll consult Hilchas Talmud Torah, you'll consult the uh, area in the Code of Jewish Law, which delineates the various degrees of obligation of Torah study. But the point is that you are being Hashem's host. You are hosting Hashem. He wants nothing more than to be at home in this world, and you're allowing that to happen. And therefore, what's the main point of this chapter and all the chapters since 26? Therefore, you should feel very happy. Very happy that you are giving Hashem what He wants. Furthermore, he says, there are other ways of being a host to Hashem in this world. Namely, through giving tzedakah. He says, realistically, you're going to study Torah and provide Hashem an abode in His world that way for a certain amount of time a day. And the rest of the day, for most of us, is going to be spent earning a living. So, the al says, even during the time that you spend earning a living, when you take from your income and you give tzedakah, you sanctify the entire activity of work. You turn that into an abode as well. Why do I go to work? What am I actually doing? provide a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. Not even getting into how a person can actually, while he's working, see that as Avedis Hashem itself. Right now, what we're talking about is just the fact that he, he has the intention that ultimately the purpose of the work is in order to take from the money earned through work and set it aside for tzedakah. Just that alone. Just that alone transforms the entire activity into giving Hashem a dwelling place in this world. Because <clears throat> the purpose of going out to work becomes dedicated or sanctified, set aside to the fulfillment of, of Hashem's will in this world. So a person can be happy about that as well. He should feel happy. But what does he what does he do all day? What do you do all day? I provide a shema dwelling place in this world. The, the 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 common denominator here is that you have a privilege. You're giving a shem what he wants. He wants to be here. He wants to be revealed here. You are making that happen. And you should be happy. It's interesting because none of this has anything to do with being happy about what you're getting. It's all about being happy about what you're giving, and specifically what you're giving Hashem. What is happiness? the ability to be useful to your maker. To give him what he wants. See, back in chapter 26, in the beginning of 26, when we started all these chapters about happiness, we already established that we don't, we don't always get what we want, and that even when we don't get what we want, uh, that doesn't have to make us unhappy at all. We can reframe it. It's hidden good. So we're, we're over that already. We got over that. We got over worrying about getting what we want. We can be happy even when we don't get what we want. Now we're talking about something even greater. Not only are we happy when we don't get what we want, but we've discovered that true happiness is the ability to give. 
has nothing to do with getting anything. It has to do with giving. And the greatest form of giving, giving to Hashem. Giving to Hashem. And when you realize that you have the opportunity to live a life that gives nachas, pleasure, gratification, fulfillment, to the Infinite One, you will be happy. How could you not be happy? Now, like I told you, chapter 34 sort of sums up the happiness chapters. And also, like I told you before, we're going to continue talking about a dwelling place in this world, but as, it's, as a subject unto itself in 35, 36, and 37. But we are concluding talking about happiness. So here's the conclusion of chapter 34, which is also sort of a um, retrospective uh, summary of everything that we have been discussing in the past few chapters. It says like this, that you should remember that even though we have now learned several ways of being happy, this is in no way a contradiction to the fact that we can and probably should experience frustration over the limitations that our bodies and our animal souls place upon us. And we can experience these two contradictory emotions simultaneously. How can we experience two contradictory emotions simultaneously? Because they are about two different things. We're not feeling two opposite emotions about one thing. We're feeling two opposite emotions about two different things. We are feeling joy and gladness and gratitude about our divine soul's ability to serve Hashem. And at the same time, it's equally true and it's equally a cause for an emotional reaction that we are frustrated over the limitations that our bodies and our animal souls place upon us. Doesn't say, by the way, that we're frustrated or bitter about the way life is treating us. Because we got over that. Like I told you, in the beginning of chapter 26, we already dealt with that. <clears throat> we're not going to complain about how life treats us. But we still can complain about the way that we're treating life. We can, we can still be frustrated that we, we, you know, we don't live up to our, our uh, mission in life. Or that it's so hard to live up to our mission in life. And you don't have to take that so hard. I know, in, our, in today's day and age, we're so sensitive. And any, <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but <coughs> we've spoke about this in chapter 29, when we're talking about being a master of accounts and scrutinizing yourself thoroughly, that sometimes, you know, it just, it's too much for us and we can't take it and we can't pull ourselves out of it. But the truth is that if you don't do chapter 29, which is really, uh, which is really harsh, that level of self uh, examination. But on some level, there is supposed to be a healthy degree of frustration over the limitations of our bodies and animal souls. And that frustration, even though it's a negative feeling, is not a contradiction at all with the fact that we can simultaneously feel great joy and, and even pride that we have a divine soul which is able to do 
so much for, for Hashem. And this paradox of joy and frustration is part and parcel of our relationship with Hashem as those who desire to be servants of Hashem. This is what it says in the Zohar, that gladness is wedged in one side of my heart, and weeping, weeping is wedged in the other side. We can experience them both. It's not two opposite emotions about one thing. It's two opposite emotions about two different things, two different facts. Don't confuse them. Keep them separate. Are you your godly soul or are you your animal soul? Yes. So are you thrilled, absolutely bubbling over with joy, or are you annoyed and frustrated with yourself? Yes. It's not a contradiction whatsoever. And not only it's okay to feel that way, that's probably the ideal way to feel. At least for a Benini, at least for a regular person who still has a robust animal soul. That we should feel these two opposite emotions. And, and, and that we should just understand that it's not an inherent contradiction. They're coming from two different places, and we feel them about two different, two different conditions. And, and is it paradoxical? Yes. But our whole nature is paradoxical, and that's what we started with in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, one of the first things we got clarity about was the paradoxical nature of having these two antithetical entities housed within, within one body. Godly Forces. soul and animal soul. Forces. Wills, two different wills, two different operating systems. So we started the Tanya with, with embracing that paradox. And here in chapter 34, as we're really, this is a milestone now, because we're completing uh, a whole string of chapters which deal with uh, one topic, 26 through 34, the topic of joy, and we come to the conclusion that we can feel conflicting emotions. It's not a contradiction whatsoever. It is just a reflection of the underlying paradox, which is having two souls. Good? Good?